0: David writes Psalm 62, and as he writes it, he's not in that place. Whatever that place is that you just thought of, that spot in this world, that time in your life, David is not there. Instead, he finds himself where all of us spend most of our time as well. He finds himself in the tumult of life. He finds himself in the daily grind, in the fray. Now, since David was a king, his tumults are and were a bit more tumultuous than ours typically are. There were plots and intrigues, coup d'etat that took place within his kingdom, within his palace. So the things that happen to David perhaps happen on a grander scale than they actually take place in our lives. But the idea of being in the grind and in the tumult of life, we just, we know that well. We experience it. It's the place where we spend most of our time day after day in that same place. David's quest in Psalm 62 is not to get himself to whatever that special place was where he could find that physical kind of rest. But instead, his quest is to find a restful soul, a quieted soul, in the midst of whatever circumstances were around him in life. And that's why he says to us and exhorts us in verse 8, Trust in him at all times, O people. Regardless of what the circumstances are in your life, trust in Him at all times. Today then, here's what we're going to look at. We're going to consider the pursuit, the gift, and the discipline of a quieted or restful or a peaceful soul. The pursuit, the gift, and the discipline. First, we consider the pursuit of a restful soul. So on the front of your bulletin, I quoted this passage that I suppose amongst the sayings of Jesus is one of the most comforting and one of the most well-known, right, in the world as a whole. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." It's an incredible invitation and command that comes to us from Jesus. And as he makes it, he's echoing other parts of Scripture. Other parts of Scripture, for example, like Jeremiah 6.16. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. In many places in Scripture that is held out to us a place for our souls to find rest. And more than echoing that, when Jesus makes his call in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is identifying, he is putting his finger on something that none of us can deny. All of us have experienced restlessness, disquiet of our soul. It manifests itself in all sorts of ways. We've got this restlessness, asking ourselves, where do I fit in the world? What should I be doing in the world? Why do I have this feeling of being unsettled, of being disconnected? Why do I come to church and I sit here in church and other people here in church seem to be connected? They seem to have friends, a sense of what they're doing here. Why do I feel on the outside disconnected? Why am I so often unsatisfied with myself, unsatisfied with my position in life, unsatisfied with the people who are around me? Why am I not the person I'd like to be? Why is the world the way it is? Why am I stuck in these present circumstances? We are restless in our souls. Perhaps it's true that we felt this restlessness most keenly when we were teenagers. When our bodies were full of energy, when we could do all sorts of things. Potentials seemed limitless. I was playing basketball. Some of the guys in the church were playing basketball with teenagers, which is a mistake, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And at one point I was watching one of the kids sprinting down the court for no good reason. You now, there's sometimes there are good reasons to sprint down the court, other times you know there's nothing you can do about this. Why sprint in this situation? And and I, I watched him, I, I got ready to say, What are you doing? Why are you doing this? And I realized, all oh, right, right, he's a teenager. He's got boundless energy whereas I am going to budget this in a different way. So you're a teenager, you're restless, you've got boundless energy, but you've got probably the most restrictions you'll ever have in your life. You're restless. You're ready to do something, and yet you feel all of this constraint. It's probably acute or most acute when we're teenagers, but teenagers, it doesn't go away. It only seems to you like we're not restless. We actually are restless as well. We have a restlessness that exists Within us, it just, just manifests itself a little bit differently. To this point in our series, looking at the soul and looking at the Psalms, I have intentionally uh, refrained, restrained myself from quoting Augustine in the confessions because uh, it's so well known to us. But now's the time. Now is the time where I have to use this quote from him again because it is familiar to us and it gets exactly at this idea. Augustine says, thou hast formed us for thyself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. We've been formed for him and our hearts are restless. We are all restless. We all want rest. We want healing we want broken things to be fixed and put back together. We want love and belonging and purpose. We want quiet peace for our souls. And David wants that as well in this psalm. And like so many of the psalms, he articulates a true and a false way to pursue the rest of that we seek in our soul. The the false path, and and this is the pursuit that we're looking at right now, can be pursued in a wrong way. And I don't want to go into this a lot, but I do want to point it out in verses 3 and 4 in the first place. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? You'll go up to a person, you'll see that he's in trouble, leaning a little bit, and you'll push it down. From the time that we were young kids, perhaps even before we can remember it, when we're one or two and somebody builds up a stack of blocks, we crawl over to it. It takes a long time to build something up and to be satisfied with the work of your hands, and it takes no time to walk over and to knock that thing down. It is a cheap way of finding, as a one-year-old or as a two-year-old, rest for your soul. It's an equalizer you didn't get up above me. I can take down what you built. That's what they're doing. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. They knock down snowmen. Other people build them, they knock them down because you feel better. Your soul feels a little bit better. If somebody is not shining more brightly than you are. Now, adults grow up or children grow up, become adults. You kind of learn, okay, it's probably not a good idea to knock down block towers that other people have made or knock down snowmen. But we do it. We just do it with words instead. Another false pursuit is articulated for us in verses 9 and 10. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together, lighter than breath. We are tempted to find rest and significance in how we relate to others and the people that we know and their opinion of us. Whether they're low or whether they're high estate, I know someone in a high estate and thus dovetail with them, find a little significance in our lives. If you put your trust in princes, if you put your trust in men to find rest for your soul, to find your validation of being, it seems to us weighty, seems to us significance, significant. And it weighs less than a breath. You put them all together. There is no gravity in it. Uh, Yesterday, we were at the Mercer Museum out in Doylestown. The Mercer Museum is made out of concrete. It's heavy. It's weighty. I don't know what it weighs, but it's heavy. But to God, you put that all together, and it's less than a breath. It has nothing. You can add them all up together, but if you look for your validation or your rest for your soul in them, it is nothing. And then verse 10 switches it to Riches. Don't put any trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. People who are at rest, we think, are people who have abundance. People who have a lot. And we don't feel at rest oftentimes because we see that other people are more financially stable and secure than we are or than we are likely to be. Don't put your trust in that what David says, that's an illusion of rest. It's an illusion when you think to yourself, my soul would be satisfied, my soul would be at rest if I had X amount of money, if my financial planner could show me this money. David wants to awaken us to the fact That our soul is a machine inside of us that is driven by pursuing that which it lacks. It lacks rest. It lacks peace in God. And so, what your soul is designed to do is to be at rest, and so it will work. It will work relentlessly trying to pursue that which it does not have, rest. It is our common pursuit. There's not one person in this room who does not pursue this kind of rest. It is a pursuit, and it is a gift. Here's one of the great twists of life in a fallen world. That for which we strive... That which we seek can neither be found nor secured by our pursuits. You can put on a wingsuit. Know what a wingsuit is? One of those suits they make now. It's got the stuff is hanging down from various places. Put on a wingsuit. You can grab onto the edges of a hang glider. You can plunge off a cliff in the most beautiful part of the world and you will not find peace for your soul. You can scale Everest. You can drop 60 in your last game, drop 400 threes in a season, and you will not find rest for your soul in those things. For sinners, which is to say for all of us, rest, soul rest, Has to be given to us. That's what verse 1 and 2 are all about. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. That which I seek is a gift that must be given to me by God Himself, it comes from God. And therefore, the exhortation trust in him at all times. God is a refuge for us. It comes alone from him. Humanly speaking, David had a lot. He was a king, he was wealthy at times, he was influential, he was powerful, he had a city, he had a palace, he was a warrior. We wouldn't pick a fight with David. Not only was he a warrior, he was handsome. And not only was he a warrior who was handsome, but he was a poet and a musician. From a human standpoint, David had a lot that was going for him, but in the scales of significance for a restful soul, it was nothing. It was vaporous. David says in verse 7, On God rests my salvation and my glory. Remember that the word for glory is the word for heaviness, for weightiness. With all of the things I may possess in this life, they are nothing. My weightiness, my gravity depends on God, and it depends on God giving it to me. God possesses two things in particular. These are not unknown to us. These are not surprising to us. They are familiar to us, wonderfully familiar to us. That's why David can say in verse 11, Once God has spoken, twice I've heard this. In fact, I've written a bunch of psalms about it, he could have added here. Power belongs to the Lord, and with him belongs steadfast love. God has two things. God has power, and he has steadfast love. And to remind us of what that means, it means he is able and he is willing. He is able with his power, he is willing with his love. But David the king is dependent upon God. Jesus the king, in comparison to David the king, is the source Jesus has something for us that we desperately want. Jesus possesses rest and peace in himself, and more than being the possessor alone of rest and peace, he possesses the ability to give that which he has as his right and as his possession. Thus he can say to you, to me, come to me all you who weary, who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You'll find rest for your souls, or later, or in the Gospel of John, for example, my peace I give to you. I have a treasure. It is that what your soul seeks. You seek rest, peace of conscience, tranquility in your soul. I have it, and I am willing to give it but it is a gift to be given. This invitation is unlike any other offers that are based on human works. There's no contingencies here. There's no respecter of wealth, of influence, of power. None of that makes any difference in this. The resurrection and the ascension of Jesus prove that he is able and his death says to us, I'm willing. I have the power. My resurrection and ascension show you I've got the power. My death shows you I'm willing. I am willing to give you that which you seek. To give rest to those who will acknowledge their restlessness The restful soul is is in pursuit. It receives then as a gift rest. And finally, we consider the discipline of rest. This sounds different. The gift is given, and we must exercise the gift that has been given to us. Through faith in Christ... We have entered into rest. And the writer of Hebrew says, A rest remains. Strive to enter that rest. In rest, we pursue rest. From the position of rest, we seek rest. Let me illustrate this within this psalm itself. Verse 1 says this, For God alone my soul waits in silence. It's a state of quietude. My, My soul is in this place. By the way, this gets confusing. The word wait is actually not in the Hebrew. It's an understanding of something that is there. For God alone, toward God alone, my soul in silence is the idea here. But the the description here is that he possesses it. That's what I'm doing. My soul is waiting for God. But look at the shift that takes place in verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. David is instructing his soul to do that which he said he was already doing. And we kind of ask the question, what happened within the space of three verses here? How did we go from you being a guy who had quiet of soul before God and circumstances to now having to instruct your soul, saying, Soul, rest, be quiet in the Lord. What happened in that short time span? Well, here's what happens. Here's why your soul can be at rest one minute and then be seeking it the next. It's because life is hard. Life's hard. Calvin is beautiful here, and I usually resist long quotes, at least. This is a little bit of a longer one, but Calvin here is responding to exactly the question that I've just articulated for us. How does he go between these two things? How can a guy who says he's got soul rest, his soul is in quiet before the Lord, then seek it? His soul was silent before God. And where the necessity of this new silence, as if still under agitation of spirit, why did he have to do this? Here it is to be remembered that our minds can never be expected to reach such perfect composure as shall preclude every inward feeling of disquietude, but are at best, this is our our minds, are at best as the sea before a light breeze, fluctuating sensibly, though not swollen into billows. It is not without a struggle that the saint can compose his mind, and we can very well understand how David should enjoin more perfect submission upon a spirit which was already submissive, urging upon himself farther advancement in this grace of silence till he had mortified every carnal inclination and thoroughly subjected himself to the will of God. So this is point number one from Calvin, our minds don't stay in this place. They don't stay in this tranquil, tranquil, restful place. But as the sea rolls, so our minds, so our souls, so our hearts likewise roll. So we're going to have to pursue it again. The next step, how often besides will Satan renew the disquietudes which seem to be effectually expelled? You think you got over something. You think, okay, that thing that I'm struggling with that used to upset me, that's a thing of the past. I used to get upset with this. It's now in the past. Satan will bring it back up again. And you once again find disquietude, Calvin's word, where you thought you were over that thing. I repeat that there is no reason to be surprised, though David here calls upon himself a second time to preserve that silence before God which he might already appear to have attained For in the midst of disturbing motions of the flesh, perfect composure is what we never reach. This is exactly a point at which we struggle with the Psalms. As we have worked our way through the Psalms, we have talked about all sorts of aspects of the soul, including the troubled soul and now the restful soul. And some of you have come up to me and asked me and said, how can we have both of those things? This is how we can have both of those things. Our minds never stay at perfect composure. We can say, we can read Philippians 4 and say, I'll never be disturbed. I'll never be anxious about anything. I will never, ever worry because I will pray with thanksgiving and the God of peace will be with me. You will be disturbed and that's why you will pray that prayer over and over again. We will have both of these things. For David, within the space of just a few verses, our minds, Satan, and then later Calvin goes on to say, troubles that spring up, all of these things will disquiet us at points along the way. And David, like a physical therapist or like a personal trainer, says, listen, this idea of the quieted soul is actually something that you have to exercise as well. It's given to you as a gift, but you have to exercise that which you have been given. How do you exercise it? Well, there's a lot of ways, but there are four tucked right in the psalm, and I'll only do them quickly. How do you exercise it? You exercise it, number one, by taking it out. Extract your soul. This was the very first point that we had in this sermon on the soul focus. Extract your soul. Instruct it. Speak to it. Look at what is going on with that soul. And you are going to have to instruct a disquieted soul, saying, Oh, my soul. Oh, my soul, put your trust back in God. It's where you started and you've strayed away from it. Put your trust back in God. Exercise number two rehearse the promises. The language that is used in this psalm is language that is familiar both to us and to David. You're my rock, you're my fortress you're my stronghold. God has power, loving kindness. There's nothing new there in what David is saying. Those aren't new metaphors. They are almost creedal-like statements that David is making or that David is rehearsing for himself and for those whom he instructs. That is why we say the creeds over and over. That's why you memorize these things and hymns and places in Scripture so that your mind exercises the promises of God. When you find your soul all a mess and all a wreck, the exercise you do is to rehearse the promises of God. Exercise number three that is given to us. It's found in verse 8. Pour out your heart before him, The silence that is commanded to us, that is exhorted to us here, is not a silence of not saying anything at all. It is rather describing a peaceful disposition that, frankly, is a result of being able to pour out your soul. Pour it out before the Lord. What is happening in your life? You know you're going to worry about it. Make sure you're praying about it. No exhortation to worry about it. Just knowing that you're going to do that, pray as well. This is the exact same trajectory of Philippians chapter 4. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's the exact same application that Paul is making that David is exhorting upon us. Pour out your soul before him. Take whatever it is you're struggling with and tell it to God. Exercise number four is actually the last one, and it is the very last phrase that we find in our psalm this morning. For you will render to a man according to his work. Present rest is inseparably linked to confidence in God's final, future, and perfect reckoning.